According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, guess where? Jeremiah. And uh, guess where? There's not a 53rd chapter, so we must be at the end in chapter 52. Jeremiah 52. And this concludes what has been a year now, more than a year, uh, with one chapter per Sunday, working our way through 52 weeks, 52 chapters. And um, I tell you, I want to go back to chapter one again and just jump into it, into the depths. And there's so much doctrine, there's so much meat. And I think uh, of all the apostles, or all the prophets in the Old Testament that were types of Christ, you know, Jeremiah was uh, was right there. You know, in fact, even some of the when, when uh, Jesus asked his disciples, "Who do the people think I am?" One of the possibilities was Jeremiah. <laughs> they said, "Well, some think you're Jeremiah, or one of the prophets." Well, why would they think he was Jeremiah? Other than the fact that Jeremiah's ministry was much like his in uh, in the the affliction, the conflict, the mistreatment, the uh, imprisonments, and all the things that he endured and went through, the weeping prophet clearly um, was a type of the man of sorrows, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And uh, so all of that is to say, I'm going to miss this book, I think, as we wrap it up. Uh, when I do return from Ukraine, uh, we will be starting a new series in the book of Hebrews. And so I'm looking forward to that and uh, very much been looking forward to that. I've been dreaming of teaching the book of Hebrews ever since seminary. And I've never, other than through the Bible, uh, I have not done an in-depth study from the book of Hebrews. And so uh, stay tuned for that. I'm I'm anticipating it's going to be like the Roman series where we were, you know, five to 10 hours per chapter. And so you're looking at 13 chapters of Hebrews, we're looking at, you know, maybe 130 hours, uh, maybe maybe 60, somewhere in, in that range. So a good two years, probably, or three, to, uh, to break down the book of Hebrews. But we need it. We absolutely need it. It's the book of our priesthood. It's the book uh, of the advanced things and uh, the Melchizedek priesthood. And so if you are slow of hearing, don't show up, all right? <laughs> Uh, the, the, the author himself says, I have much to say to you except you are slow of hearing and it's hard to explain. And so uh, uh, definitely have to bring your thinking cap in order to, uh, to take the book of Hebrews. Anyway, for today though, Jeremiah chapter 52 and we have 34 verses to cover and I cannot be late. So uh, let's get to it. Remember God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the word of God. Let's humble ourselves in prayer. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the truth of your word. Humble, Father, who are we that we should receive such instruction? And yet, in your Son, Father, we are in him, and he is the heir of all things. How will will you in him not freely give us all things? Father, I thank you for the blessings we have to study. I thank you for the provision of God the Holy Spirit, that he indwells each one of us, Father, and and leads us in the paths of righteousness. So, Father, be faithful once again. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah chapter 52. I believe 52 is an addition. I believe that uh, Jeremiah did not pen this chapter, that it was added by Baruch. I may be wrong on that, and uh, if so, it doesn't really affect canonicity. It doesn't reflect uh, the inspiration of Scripture in any respects. It's fairly common. I believe the last chapter of Deuteronomy was added by Joshua after Moses died. 
Uh, I think it's fairly common for other authors to come along and not only uh, finish a text, but also to put the text in the present order that we have it. David didn't write his psalms in the order we have them in. The 23rd psalm wasn't the 23rd one David ever wrote. And so there were additional, the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in compiling Scripture and organizing the Psalms and, and structuring the Proverbs, in uh, at, adding the epilogues to various books of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is free to do all of that because He's the author of all of Scripture. And so I don't really have a problem with this being an addition of Baruch's, beginning with the narrative of Zedekiah's capture. And these first 11 verses, we're going to be very familiar with it. If you were with us just a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 39, we've already seen the story. Uh, Jerusalem's under siege, and after a year, a year and a half of siege, uh, the Babylonians break in, and, and that's it, right? They burn the place down, they take everyone off captive, the ones they don't kill. Uh, they take off captive into Babylon. They leave Jeremiah alive. We, we studied that in chapter 39. And so much of this is, is redundant. Not all, though. There are some additional details which are interesting. I think the kind of details that get added after years of reflection, thinking back to certain things. Uh, but anyway, we have 11 verses, and uh, chapter 39 is our parallel. Uh, also, there's a historical parallel in 2 Kings 25, as well as 2 Chronicles 36. So the fall of Jerusalem is recorded in a number of places throughout the Old Testament. Taking a look at these verses now, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, different Jeremiah, not the prophet, coincidence on the name. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, and this is what gets stressed in this account. In this account, it's anger that gets stressed. Through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And then we start to get some details and some details about um, the year and the month and the day, some details that I find to be uh, remarkably different from other details and other passages. And it's useful for us to have slightly different numbers because in those numbers I think we have testimony to the accuracy of Scripture. And we don't have authors that are just copying each other trying to make their book line up with somebody else's book. And uh, and Baruch is not trying to forge something here and make it agree with something that Jeremiah wrote back in chapter 39. And uh, to me, that's a significant blessing in uh, the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, so it came about, in verse 4, in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. That's the last year, of course. He only reigns 11 years. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And this is the, the day that's commemorated to this day. The Jews will commemorate Tishba'av. It's a, it's a day of mourning. It's a day of sadness over the destruction of Jerusalem. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar's destruction in 586, also Titus, the Roman destruction in 70 A.D., on the very same day, the Tishba'av, it's the day of sadness, the double destruction for uh, the Jewish people. And uh, so it's described here. <coughs> the city was broken into, all the men of war fled, went forth from the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls. Remember that? I believe it was a hidden gate that uh, happened as the walls were restructured. 
which was by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. They captured the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. And all of this is the fulfillment of prophecy. All of this is what Yahweh said was going to happen. The Lord said this was going to happen. And Zedekiah was a little bit dismissive, comparing uh, one prophet against another and mocking all of them. And there was Jeremiah, of course, a real prophet. There was also false prophets that Jeremiah had to deal with. Some that said, oh, no, no, you're not going to go to Babylon. And others that said, yes, you're going to go to Babylon. You're going to die in Babylon. You'll never see Babylon. Well, even the liars were true. Because he never sees Babylon. He dies in Babylon, but he never sees it because his eyes get put out here. And this is God, I think, in, in a marvelous fashion, uh, even testifying to his glory through the mouth of the liars, the false prophets that said, you'll never see Babylon. And so, uh, verse 10, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also slaughtered all the princes of Judah in Riblah. And you start to think, well, wait a minute, this is pretty bad. This is the extermination of the line of David. What, what happens to the Davidic covenant? Ah, way ahead of you, okay? And we'll, uh, we'll have this figured out before we leave here today. So he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah, the king of uh, Babylon, bound him with bronze fetters, brought him to Babylon, put him in prison until the day of his death. He lives out his days in prison blind and in prison. And so this is what we see. All right. So a key element being anger, and we can study this, and we have studied this in other studies. You want to do a a doctrinal study on the anger of God. It doesn't mean that he's not love. It means that he is love. Uh, Love and hate are the flip sides of the same coin, and his anger is an expression of his love in uh, different ways. But we also know that his anger is very short. And one of the blessings is that he is slow to anger, And by the time he finally gets there, when he does apply the anger, it's always on a limited basis for a short period of time because he knows which one of us can stand up to the full blast of his his anger. None of us, right? And so he's very limited and very merciful in in his anger in this regard. Psalm 30 in verse 5 speaks to this, if you're familiar with Psalm 30. And uh, verse 5. The um, I, uh, well, there's a lot here, but I'm short on time. Verse uh, four says, "Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones. Give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment; His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning." And so, whatever the difficult times are, whatever you're testing, whatever your discipline, think of it in metaphor as night. All right, and what follows night? morning. The sun will rise and God's mercy will be renewed. His mercies are renewed morning by morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Okay, And the weeping prophet who wrote all these things, by the way, if you want more details on this starvation, read Lamentations. All right, Jeremiah in his book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 2, Lamentations chapter 4, gives more detail on this. Tragic surviving, trying to survive the famine, surviving the siege, food was gone. They found other things we wouldn't consider food, okay? Cannibalism, children, all right? It is a grim, grim story. And uh, anyway, you can, uh, Jeremiah writes this in in Lamentations if you want to turn there to chapter 2 or to chapter 4. Starvation details are cited in Lamentations. And yet, that book, 
that, that most depressing book in our entire Bible has the, some of the most wonderful promises, such as morning by morning, new mercies I see. Great is thy faithfulness. And then this is what he recalled to his mind so that he would have hope. And that's what we see described here. So anyway, that's Psalm 30 in verse 5. We also, uh, in our Isaiah series, had it in the development of chapter 54. Isaiah 54, verse 7 and verse 8. Uh, the Lord here speaking to Judah says, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with an everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And that's uh, part of Isaiah's great message. And if you're not familiar with Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, let me tell you, this is a very special portion of uh, the book of Isaiah. So anger is for just a moment, and we can appreciate that. The um, Back to Jeremiah then, uh, verses 12 through 16 in, the, in our next section. And I know I'm going quickly. I do this every Sunday. <laughs> Got to cover the chapter this week. All right. And this week especially is the most uh, vital of all. All right. Verses 12 through 16. A specifically dated narrative for the temple and city raising. We get details here we don't have in chapter 39. There's details here that we don't have in Second Kings 25 or we don't have in Second Chronicles. Unique details that are not the mark of a forger trying to make everything line up just right. They're the mark of a real eyewitness that's reflecting on these things as he saw it because he was there. And some things that might otherwise get forgotten. So verses 12 through 16. Now on the 10th day of the fifth month, and you remember when the city was captured? It was in the fourth month, right? The ninth day of the fourth month. Didn't we have that in verse 6? Yes, we did. All right. So verse 12. Now on the 10th day of the fifth month, so we've got a month and a day later, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And some scholars have problems with that. Okay, because they date the years differently. Babylonians did not, uh, did not count the ascension year the way that the Hebrews counted the ascension year. And so there's a distinction there between, between uh, dating systems. And while the mockers think it's a problem, uh, I think it's genius. I think it's great the way God reflects these things in, uh, in his writings. All right, the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who was in the service of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord. And so we realize there was about a month delay there from the capture to the burning, that there had been other things taking place, including plundering and capturing people and putting them in lines and putting them in chains and killing the ones you're going to kill and selling the ones you're going to sell and marrying the ones you're going to marry and, and all the other things that happened with plunder in the ancient world. All right, and I won't go into some of those unpleasant things. It's not pleasant for the for the women and the children, let me tell you, and the men are usually just butchered. But um, this is what happens, and so it takes time. And then there's searches that are made for all the hidden stashes of treasure and whatever else they can find, and then uh, the order comes to burn it all to the ground, and that happens a month and a day later. And you might think, well, who cares? Why, why is that detail even important? But as a, as a part of, I think, the epilogue that's being added here by Baruch, years later he adds this after the death of Jeremiah. I find it to be an interesting detail that he adds as an eyewitness. 
that says, oh, by the way, you know, it really was a month and a day later that they finally did burn the, uh, the place down. So he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were uh, with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile some of the poorest of the people. Another detail that wasn't found in chapter 39. The rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the artisans. Most of them were taken in 597. Most of the artisans were taken with Ezekiel in that captivity. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. It'd be like somebody coming and conquering Austin and uh, plundering it and then taking away everyone they thought was useful and then just giving, leaving a handful of houses intact and giving them to homeless people, giving them to uh, vagrants and other folks and saying, all right, here's your new house, uh, work this land and, and here, you, you know, World Point, get a lie of the governor to uh, you do what he tells you to do. And that's uh, what we see here. All right. Now, some of these details. Chapter 39 did not distinguish between the breaching of the walls in the ninth month and the final destruction of the temple and the city in the tenth month. If you read through chapter 39, it just seems like, you know, broke the walls, captured the city, burned it all down, and it all took place in one fateful night. Okay? There's no passing of time in that 39th chapter that gives you this level of specificity, this level of detail. Not that it conflicts. I don't think it conflicts at all. It's just speaking in a very broad way about the events that took place. All right? You, and when we do this all the time. It's normal human conversation or discussion to do this kind of thing. Uh, you don't have to give the specificity unless unless it fits your purpose to give that specificity. You know, when we talk about 9-11, when we talk about two planes crashing into two towers, you know, we can refer to that as one single event, as one day. But we know the North Tower was hit first and an hour later the South Tower was hit or whatever the time difference was. And there was time that happened there. We, we could give that specificity if we wanted to, but it's not necessary that we do. And so... Um, for Jeremiah's purpose in chapter 39, he didn't find it necessary to say, hey, yeah, there was a month of looting and plunder before they burned it down. He just said they broke the walls and burned it down. We're fine with that. At least I'm fine with that. If you have a problem, then I'll pray for you. All right. Remarkably enough, the author of Second Kings shared the same detailed distinction that the author of chapter 52 did. So the author of 2 Kings shared the specificity about the month with Baruch. I believe Baruch was the author of Jeremiah 52. The author of 2 Kings makes the same detailed distinction, but he chose to spotlight day 7 instead of day 10. (laughs) All right. He spotlights the 7th day of the 10th month rather than the 10th day of the 10th month. And so we put that detail together. How many days did it take to burn the city down anyway? How many days does it take to burn every single building and to to designate which ones are going to be spared and which ones are going to be burned? The burning process took three days, starting on day seven, ending on day 10. Again, I don't have any problem reconciling these chapters or reconciling these numbers. It's it's fairly simple to reconcile. Who wrote 2 Kings? Anybody know? The author of 2 Kings? The author of First and Second Kings. It was one book originally. 
Believe it or not, this is going to crack you up. I mean, we've been 52 weeks now in Jeremiah, right? And I have not mentioned it until today. But how many times have we seen parallels back and forth between the history of 2 Kings and the prophecy of Jeremiah? Well, the, the tradition is, Jewish tradition is that Jeremiah is the author of First and Second Kings. <laughs> so he wrote his book, he wrote Lamentations, and he wrote First and Second Kings, according to the Jewish tradition. So, in any event, it's kind of an interesting thing to observe there as well. All right. Now we get to take some inventory. We get to uh, check out the plunder and the loot. And uh, there's, there's plunder, both of materiel and personnel that we see stipulated here. So uh, where are we? Verse 17. Now the bronze pillars, remember these things? Remember when Solomon built these things? There's two of them, two of the monster pillars, and then there's a bunch, about 100 other or 300 other of the smaller pillars. But the bronze pillars which belonged to the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. Say, you have anything that you think is too big to steal? Well, it can be broken up into pieces. <laughs> okay, And if it's bronze especially, just bust that thing up, melt that down. Well, let's take it because that's, that's worth money. We can use bronze for, uh, for all kinds of stuff. And so these got broken down. These were not captured previously. This is now the third time that an army has come in and taken off plunder. 605 is when Daniel and the other royal youths were taken away. 597 is when Ezekiel and the priests and the craftsmen were taken away. Also, a bulk of the temple was plundered as well. Most of the temple was plundered in 597. The only things that were still there were the things that were too big to carry. Well, now they're not too big to carry anymore. Now they're being busted up and uh, carried that way. So, uh, Yakin and Boaz, remember the, the name of these two pillars? And if you want to pass a Bible trivia quiz, you can learn those names. Um, all right. Verse 18, they also took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the basins, the pans, and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the bowls, the fire pans, the basins, the pots, the lampstands, the pans, and the drink offering bowls, what was in fine gold, what was in fine silver. And so this is all the materiel that's being plundered. An inventory of the materiel and personnel being plundered. Verses 24 through 30. Oh, I meant to fix that. Meant to fix that. It should be 24, no, it should be uh, 17 through 23 is the material, and then 24 through 30 is the uh, people. So fix that yourself. <laughs> Pen and ink changes. All right. Actually, I think it did get edited for the notebook. So it's uh, the notebook on the website. It didn't. There's a new notebook on the website. Go get a new notebook. All right. Where were we? Shovels, pots, pans. I mean, they're, they're plundering everything. If it's got bronze, if it's got gold, if it's got silver, they'll take it. Okay? And uh, the Jewish people should be familiar with this. This happens a lot in their history. In uh, even gold fillings and silver fillings and things as bodies get plundered. It's uh, pretty sad. 
Um, all right. Uh, verse 20, the two pillars, the one sea, the 12 bronze bowls that were under the sea, the stands which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of each pillar was 18 cubits, 12 cubits in circumference, four fingers in thickness and hollow. Capital of bronze was on it, and the height of each capital was five cubits. This bores me to tears, but, but if you are a carpenter, a builder, if you use tools, if you like dimensions of things, then uh, you'll appreciate this. Um, pomegranates. Do you like pomegranates? Network of pomegranates upon the capitals all around and of bronze. And the second pillar was like these, including the pomegranates. There were 96 exposed pomegranates, all the pomegranates numbered, 100 on the network all around. All right, so there you go. Uh, This is the material that's getting plundered, the loot that they're hauling off with. And uh, what's interesting is that this very topic, (laughs) as sad as Jeremiah wants to admit it, this very event is proving him right because he said this was going to happen. There had been a battle between a prophet and a false prophet. And uh, the false prophet says, this is going to happen. And the real prophet says, no, no, this is going to happen. And, well, we find out who's right and who's wrong when it happens. All right? And God says, this is the basis upon which you know a false prophet and you should stone them, put them to death. God would not tolerate a presumptuous prophet to live. One that stands presumptuously and says, thus saith the Lord, but he's making it up. He's flattering the people. He's giving them the happy message of what, he, what they want to hear. Okay, There's always been a handful of those kind of guys. I mean, goodness, there's, there's good money to be made by flattering people and telling them what, what they want to hear. So it's interesting. If you, you might remember back in chapter 28. Let's take a quick look at this. Jeremiah 28. I know, I'm going quickly. Jeremiah 28. Hananiah prophesied that the items plundered in 597 would shortly be returned. He said, good news. I bring you good news of great joy, right? And uh, all that plunder is coming back. So uh, it's interesting. And this is, you remember when, uh, remember the episode when Jeremiah had made him stocks for himself and he was walking around town wearing the stocks around his neck and around his hands? You know, that's, uh, it's a, uh, you know, they didn't have PowerPoint back then. They had to use visual aids. They had to use drama and other displays for different things. And it was actually pretty tame to walk around in stocks like that. Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years. So I, I think Jeremiah probably had a, had a better deal wearing the stocks. And so um, the same year in the beginning of, the, I'm reading from Jeremiah 28, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet who was from Gibeon uh, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Wow, that's good news. Within two years, I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. All that plunder is coming back. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Remember, he was the king before Zedekiah. I'm going to bring him back and his mom. I think they like the mom better than him, but all right. And uh, all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king 
of Babylon. And that was his message. And he said, within two years, see. And I find it laughable as if it wasn't so sad. The people that pay attention to these kind of people, you know, it's like the global warming alarmists and all their wild predictions, they're always wrong. And, and you want to come back and say, all right, now you said this on this day, you said by this time, we're at this time now, it hasn't happened, can I stone you now as a false prophet? Please. Anyway, that's not our dispensation. We're in the church age. I keep reminding myself it's grace. All right. You ever seen Al Gore's house on a satellite photo? I mean, that man's got a carbon footprint like I can't tell you. We could, we could put half our church in that house, I think. And Anyway. So that was the message. And the false prophet said, all of that plunder's coming back. And Jeremiah said, oh, really? Remember this? So verse 5 of Jeremiah 28, Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hanani in the presence of the priests, in the presence of all the people. It's a public message. He said, all right, let's get on the record here. The prophet Jeremiah said, amen, brother. <laughs> May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Amen, might it be so. When you say amen, you're saying, may it be so. It's a statement of faithfulness. Yet. (laughs) Yet. And so you can say an amen to something that you really would love to be true. But when you know it's not true, you have to give the rest of the story. Yet, hear now this word which I am about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against many kingdoms of war and calamity and pestilence. Ever heard of Moses? <laughs> right? This is in our Bibles. This is in Deuteronomy. We're going to captivity. The, prophesi- the prophet who prophesies of peace, verse 9, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. And that's the problem, because peace is a very popular message. You can preach peace, and, and, and uh, yeah, people like that. But if it's not true, and, and for Israel especially, when you're preaching peace, you're preaching the kingdom. You're preaching the coming of the Prince of Peace. You're preaching eschatology and what God's going to do eternally. So if you're going to be a preacher of peace, you better be the Christ or the forerunner or the herald or somebody Okay, because Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, these guys, they're not preaching peace. Only in the context of eschatology when the kingdom of God is brought to this earth. So, um, if it comes to pass, you know they're a true prophet, but if not, it's a false prophet. So, it's interesting, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't, this could be his opportunity to confess. Hananiah could stop right here and say, you're right, I'm a liar, I'm a false prophet. Uh, and, and he could respond to Jeremiah's rebuke with a fear of the Lord and just humble himself and repent and say, I made all that up. It's not true. Instead, he, uh, he, decided he takes the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah and he breaks it. He has a very public display. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. And then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. There you go. You had your chance. You had your chance. 
So um, anyway, there's a further follow-up message there, and Jeremiah sends to chase after Hananiah and give the thus says the Lord message. And, you know, he says basically the wall just got 10 feet higher. He says, uh, you've just, you've broken yokes of wood. You've made instead yokes of iron. See that? It intensifies. If you're going to live in defiance of the will of God, how do you like me now? All right? The wooden yokes are now iron yokes. How about that? So, uh, anyway, this is uh, verse 17. Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. Dropped dead right there as a false prophet. Jeremiah, on the other hand, prophesied that everything else that wasn't plundered in 597 would also be plundered. And uh, this is what we see. This is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar comes back in 586. And the things he didn't take in 597, he takes in 586. Everything else that wasn't taken in 597 was taken in 586 of all the gold, all the silver, all the, the bronze. In fact, it forms the basis for a great party that Belteshazzar is going to throw uh, a feast and an orgy on the night that, uh, that Babylon falls. And uh, they see the writing on the wall. They're drinking from these same cups and bowls and saucers and, and all the rest. Now, um, I've already mentioned... Did that drop too low? I'm sorry, that dropped too low. The specific numbers and dates for various batches of captives, these are details not found in 2 Kings 25. Some harmonization is necessary. And so uh, we have no problem doing the harmonization on that. So when you take uh, these verses, 28 through 30, we've got personnel that are carried away. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away into exile in the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, 832 persons from Jerusalem. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, that's full five years after the destruction of the city, but there's now a remedial captivity. I think it was more consequences of Gedaliah's assassination. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried into exile 745 Jewish people. So altogether, 4,600 persons in all. And we have the numbers there. Anyway, you can do the harmony on this. We want to compare Jeremiah 52, verses 28 through 30, and you can look at those numbers and put them together with Daniel uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Also, 2 Kings 24, verses 14 through 16. And I apologize, that went off the screen. I'm not sure why I did that. And uh, so that's 2 Kings 24, 14 through 16. Also Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because Ezekiel was in that middle captivity in, in 597. All right, now we get to finish the chapter and we get to finish the book. These verses are powerful and, and they're interesting to me because it's, it's uh, like the tale of two cities. How about the tale of two kings? Zedekiah in the first part of the chapter, Jehoiachin in the second part, at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book. At the end of the book, we end up with an epilogue. Oh, there we go. Oh, you know what? I outsmarted myself. Okay, because I, I noticed, I said, oh, that drops too low. I need to put that on the next slide. So I did put that on the next slide. <laughs> and I just forgot to go back and take it off that other slide. Anyway, okay, so there you go. <sighs> All right. <laughs> 
We're going to make it. We're going to make it. In fact, I can probably slow down now. I think we've got some time. Because uh, of all the details in this chapter, of all the details in this chapter, this, this, um, the end of the book from 31 through 34 I think is interesting. So yeah, there you've got your Daniel 1, 1 through 4, 2 Kings 24, 14 through 16, and Ezekiel 1, verses 1 and 2. All right. The end of the book. We have an epilogue. And specifically, we show some mercy here by a guy named Evil. Evil Merodach. Okay? You ever heard of Evil Merodach? Evil Merodach. He followed Nebuchadnezzar. He was the next king after Nebuchadnezzar. He's not king very long. Nebuchadnezzar was king for like 43 years, something like that, 45 years, some, some long period of time. He was the great. He built the hanging gardens. He built the, all the, the great display of glory in, uh, in Babylon. He even had about a seven-year vacation living as an animal in his backyard while Daniel kept the kingdom together powerfully enough. All right, And then Nebuchadnezzar gets his sanity back and he gets his kingdom back in uh, just a remarkable aspect of, of human history there. Anyway, when he finally does die, then evil Merodach follows, and he is not his father. He is not uh, really, he can't hold a candle to the glories of, of Nebuchadnezzar. But one thing he does do, though, one thing he does do is he demonstrates a blessing to the Jewish people. And he demonstrates that blessing by bringing Jehoiachin out of the dungeon. Remember, Zedekiah lives in the dungeon all the days of his life. His eyes had been put out, he was blinded, and he was going to live in the dungeon forever until the day he dies. But Jehoiachin and his mother had been carried away in 597. And they had been carried away in 597. They had been in prison all those years, including all the years of, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, until evil Merodach takes the throne. And it's interesting to me the grace that he shows here. And, and I think it's reflective upon his salvation, how Nebuchadnezzar got saved, how uh, evil Merodach has, uh, has uh, an influence probably at the hands of Daniel or Daniel's three friends. Hard to say. But we have uh, an epilogue here that's parallel to the ending of Second Kings. All right, And so whether Jeremiah wrote this or not or whether Baruch wrote this or not, uh, either Jeremiah or Baruch wrote the ending of Second Kings, and uh, and we're fine with that. We're also fine if this paragraph was added later. We're fine with that too. The Holy Spirit is free to to add to His canon anytime He wants to, and so it's not a problem if this paragraph gets added decades later. So it came about in the thirty seventh year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Remember when was he carried away? Five ninety seven. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th of the month, wow, Merry Christmas, the 25th of the 12th month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Notice what he's called here? King of Judah. Not former king, not ex-king, not the king before Zedekiah. King. King of Judah. And it's interesting, too, when you note the prophecies that are given in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel tracks his prophecies by the year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. All right. You remember the, the, the I showed a diagram of the, the last five kings of Judah. Josiah was the last good king, and then there were three sons and a grandson. Do you remember that? Eliakim, uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, the son, and then Uncle Matt. 
who gets renamed, Mattathias was his birth name, but he gets renamed Zedekiah when he becomes king. And so that's your chart of the last five kings of Judah. And, uh, and so you've got three different branches that we need to pay attention to, especially if you care at all about the Davidic covenant. Because a son of David has to sit on the throne of David forever. And uh, that can be a problem if Zedekiah is the line of Christ because Zedekiah dies and all his uh, children or his sons are all murdered before he's blinded and before he lives out his days in prison. But see, the line of Christ doesn't come through Zedekiah. The line of Christ comes through Jehoiachin. And that's a blessing. Okay? Anyway, so when you go to Matthew and you go to Luke and you read the lineage and you read the genealogy of Jesus, it's not Zedekiah, it's Jehoiachin. Okay? The son of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, going all the way back, father to son, father to son, to David. These, uh, these prophecies become important to us. All right, so um, I already read uh, verse 31, the month and the day and the year, and King Evil Merodach um, showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, brought him out of prison and spoke kindly to him, set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Babylon had been set up as a multi-kingdom empire. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar viewed himself and was rightly king of kings, lord of lords, all right, in human terms, in his, in his day and age. And so if you have the biggest throne and then you have other kings that eat with you at your table because you're the king of kings, tribute kings, for example. And now Jehoiachin gets prime uh, deputy, you know, chief deputy uh, thrown after me. All right. So set his throne above the thrones of the kings who are with him in Babylon. And so Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes, had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. That's quite a bit of difference from Zedekiah all the days of his life. Eyes put out and in prison. But now Jehoiachin is exalted. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king of Babylon. Wow, you get a line item in the budget. Okay, whatever the White House budget is, you've got an office in the White House and you've got a line item in the budget. A daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. And uh, nearly identical word for word is the account in 2 Kings, so we don't need to turn there. But I find it interesting. Now, it is not absolutely impossible for Jeremiah to still be alive in 562 B.C. when evil Merodach ascended to the throne of Babylon. Okay? And so quite conceivably, as a very, very old man, 90, 92, you know, depending on how you date Jeremiah. Jeremiah started very young. In his, he was probably 13 when he started preaching. I believe. Anyway, so it's not impossible for Jeremiah to still be alive in 562 BC when evil Merodach ascended to the throne of Babylon. Nor, by the way, is it problematic for this epilogue to be attached to the end of Jeremiah and uh, the end of 2 Kings. I have no problem with that either. The Holy Spirit is free. And if Baruch adds it, or if Ezra adds it, or if, uh, if anyone else adds it as the canon is being compiled after the captivity... See, and you're going to learn more about this because Lewis is putting material together on the post-captivity Old Testament. And this is where Ezra the scribe is, is instrumental in compiling the canon of Scripture, at least the Hebrew canon as, uh, as we know it today. 
So if Ezra adds this epilogue, or if Baruch adds this epilogue, that is not a problem for the doctrine of inspiration or the doctrine of canonicity. We are perfectly fine either way. Interestingly enough, archaeologists have found evidence of this. They've actually found ration tablets. And uh, read Pritchard sometime, and you have uh, pictures of some of these clay tablets whereby uh, Jehoiachin is mentioned by name. The king of the Jews is mentioned by name as receiving a ration at evil Merodach's table. And so the secular archaeology supports the uh, accuracy of this epilogue. Eating at the king's table is a great privilege, okay? And one that we've seen before, one that we actually had a little bit of a, of a, of a history earlier on in the book of Jeremiah. Um, they had uh, used a particular uh, hideout. You remember after uh, Gedaliah was assassinated and they, they rescued, they caught up with the captives and they rescued them, then they had to make plans to flee to Egypt. And the place that they, they were hiding out on the way to Egypt was a particular uh, refuge that goes back to a tradition when David had given uh, Mephibosheth a, 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 a place at his table. And so, uh, man, how much of this do I want to get into? Second Samuel chapter 9 and verse 7, Second Samuel 19 and verse 33. Some of this history is history that connects the David narrative with, with this narrative. All right, the tradition of being merciful to somebody you don't have to be merciful to. Evil Merodach does not have to lift Jehoiachin out of the prison, not at all, but he does, and he shows favor there. And it's a good thing that he does because he's going to have some children. He's going to have some sons. Okay, and it's interesting to me. So let's see. Let's Second uh, Samuel nine. I was thinking this is communion. This is not communion Sunday, so I've got a few more minutes. Second Samuel chapter 9. And uh, a work of kindness here from David to Mephibosheth. You remember Mephibosheth? He was a cripple. All right? And they didn't have the ADA back then. They didn't have the Americans with Disabilities Act. They didn't have handicap accessible uh, throne rooms or you know other palaces or temples or anything. Okay? In the ancient world, if you were crippled, this was, it was rough, okay? You better have family to feed you because uh, it, was, it was a tough thing. And uh, David was merciful. Now, he's a son of Saul. So his dad is the former king. And the new king, if he was feeling insecure or feeling uh, jealous or feeling whatever, uh, typically in the ancient world, Mephibosheth would be executed. Just not even, no questions asked. Because your dad was the old king and I don't want you to be a threat to my throne. Okay? You can make a claim to the throne and I don't want you to make that claim. And so if you're dead, you can't make the claim anymore. How about that? And so it's fairly common. You plunder the, the harem and make all those wives your wives and then you butcher the, the, the children so that no son of the former king can rise and, and claim the throne. Okay, that's how pagans used to do things in the ancient world. But here's David showing Mephibosheth, um, son of Jonathan, excuse me, grandson of Saul, okay, son of Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was his dear friend. 
And so um, in verse 6, 2 Samuel 9, 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, prostrated himself, and David said, Mephibosheth, he said, here is your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. You shall eat at my table regularly. And there's a great reward there that comes here to Mephibosheth on behalf of uh, his father Jonathan. In chapter 19, another episode. Years later, David's on the run again and his son Absalom is stealing the throne. And uh, David has to flee to save his life. And in the process here, there's a faithful servant that's going to make provision for him. Second Samuel 19 and verse uh, 33, let's see. Verse 31, Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on to the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. And the king said to Barzillai, you cross over with me and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? You know, Basically, you got all this great food at your table and the doctor just told me no salt. You know, <laughs> I've got to... I've got to live out my days in a low-sodium diet, and it's just kind of, eh. In other words, it's a waste of time for me to be eating at your rich table. And uh, besides that, I'm so hard of hearing, I can't even hear the musical men singing. I can't even, you know, the girls are dancing, and I'm too old for that. I mean, what, how fun is this whole thing? I might be reading into verse 35 a little bit, but that's what it says. <laughs> Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? Please let your servant return that I might die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant, Chimcham. Remember this guy? Because the hideout was named after Chimcham. It was the refuge of Chimcham that, that uh, after the the assassination of Gedaliah where they hid out. So here is your servant, Chimcham, and let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him what is good in your sight. So the king answered, Chimcham uh, shall cross over with me and I will do for him what is good in your sight. Whatever you require me I will do for you. And so this is the uh, the origin of this. And it goes on in the, the allotment there, which included eating at the king's table and included an, an allotment from the, the budget uh, a portion of food and a plot of land, a plot of land that's off the books, a plot of land that's not on the tax rolls, a plot of land that's not allotted to any of the tribes, a plot of land that was Himcam's debt-free and tax-free and it was his sovereignty as a reward from King David. Wouldn't you like to live in a place like that? And the, the county assessor sends you the the tax bill and you just rip it up and say, nope, I'm tax-free and... <laughs> and uh, yeah, wow, now I'm going, all right? Dream of those kind of things. You know, Daniel was uh, to eat at the king's table and he said, I'm not going to eat all that food. I don't know, just give me a plate of vegetables. Because yes, it's a great honor, but in a Babylonian context, the food they were serving was going to be defiling. It was sacrificed to idols. It was sac- and, and Daniel and his three friends said, we don't want any part of that. The whole story there about eating at the king's table.
Now, this epilogue presents a glimmer of hope for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because the whole Zedekiah line is gone, but the the Jeconiah line is still available, or Jehoiachim. Okay, Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachim, same guy, three different names. Um, Same, different spellings, but the same king, same line of Christ. And so the, the, we have a glimmer of hope because he's released from prison. He does have children in Babylon. So the line of, of David continues, even though they don't have a throne anymore. The line of David continues. That's important. But if you recall back in chapter 22, Jeremiah had uttered a curse upon Jeconiah. And that curse has to be resolved. The curse has to be resolved, and only God can resolve this curse because God uttered the curse. God said, no son of yours will sit on the throne. That's the curse. But God had also made a promise to David that you will always have a son that sits on the throne. And so, hello, it seems like these can't both be true. How does this reconcile? How do we have a son of David always sits on the throne, but yet uh, this line of Jeconiah gets cursed? And Jeconiah is really our last option at this point with Zedekiah and his line being stamped out. Well, we can understand these things. Let's look uh, real quickly in Jeremiah 22. And I'm, I hate to give you in five minutes what would take typically weeks <laughs> to break it down, but there you go. This hour is not our in-depth hour. This hour is our big picture hour. Last hour is our in-depth hour. Wednesday night is our in-depth hour. This is our big picture hour on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. All right, Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 30. As I live, declares the Lord. Now, God can't die, but he stakes this vow on as I live, right? This is the language of a vow. This is not, you know, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. This is not a children's ditty on a playground. When you swear to God and when you swear on your own life, You are willing to be executed if you're proven a liar. That's the nature of this kind of vow. As I live. You're going to make me a promise and say, as I live? Put your hand on a Bible and say, as I live? You are uttering a vow to the God of truth and you are putting your own life on the line when you say that. People don't pay attention to their vows anymore. All right. As I live, declares the Lord. Even though Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. And he uses the language of signet ring to teach this doctrine. And he's telling Jehoiachin what's going to happen here. I would pull you off. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. That's the promise. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Jeconiah never gets to come back. His mother never gets to come back. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, shattered jar? Is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? Notice, he and his seed. He and his seed. O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. Now he's not literally childless, but we're going to write him down childless. We're going to reckon, we're going to count him or reckon, consider that he's childless. Write him down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And that's the curse. That's the curse of Jeconiah. That's the prophecy. And he uses the language of a signet ring and says, um, okay, I can't take mine off. <clears throat> says you've gained weight since you got married. All right. There, the ring is off. The ring is off. The signet ring, the mark of your authority as king, okay? But he's going to put the signet ring back on. And this is powerful, okay? Not through Jeconiah. Jeconiah dies in Babylon, but he has a son and he has a grandson. And they come back. The grandson comes back, by the way, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel comes back. And Lewis is going to be talking about Zerubbabel, leading the exiles back. It's a beautiful thing. So Jehoiachin was written down childless, but Chronicles record seven sons. <laughs> well, pretty good for a childless guy. The genealogy of Jesus Christ shows the lineage from Jehoiachin to Shealtiel to Zerubbabel. Joseph is the husband of Mary, but not the biological father of Jesus. So when you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and you read through, starting in verse 12, verse 13, get on down to verse 16, and notice, what do you see here? Because this curse is a problem. No descendant of Jeconiah can sit on the throne. But see, virgin birth, okay? He's not a physical son of Joseph. Isn't this beautiful? And so uh, as the Lord solves his own dilemma here, so uh, Matthew 1, 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father to Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim. And just read through this list. Father to son, father to son. From the 5th century or 6th century BC all the way to the birth of Christ. And a uh, long list of names. You get down to Matthan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Notice now, it doesn't say Joseph was the father of Jesus. It says Joseph was the husband of Mary, by whom, Mary, Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And this is so beautiful. This is what the prophets are all about. This is what Isaiah is about. This is what Jeremiah is about. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Not only because that's a miracle and it'll get people's attention, (laughs) but also because God himself is going to reconcile what we can't reconcile. God himself is going to make two seemingly contradictory things both happen. No son of Jeconiah will sit on the throne, but the son of David through the line of Jeconiah will sit on the throne. All right, Because that is the legal line. That is father to son, father to son, from David to Solomon, not Nathan, Solomon, the legal line of the throne, to Rehoboam all the way through all those kings, to Jeconiah. The legal line, Jesus was entitled to sit on the throne of David. He never did, never attempted to, but he will. Okay, second advent. So Joseph is the husband of Mary, but not the biological father of Jesus. And so the signet ring, study Haggai sometime. The signet ring is removed from Yahweh's hand when he dethrones Jehoiachin, but he gives a signet ring prophecy to Zerubbabel when uh, Yahweh declines to enthrone him. He comes back, he leads some captives back, 
And you might think if he was an arrogant man, he would lead some captives back and then he would set up his own throne and say, I am the heir of David, I am taking this throne. And he doesn't. He is so humble. And so Yahweh gives him a prophecy of a signet ring. Haggai 2. Who turns to Haggai? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So we're right here at the end of the Old Testament. Haggai. You should pay more attention to Haggai. Haggai, uh, Haggai means festive. In Hebrew, a chag is a, is a festival. And so he's, you know, I think he was probably a party kind of guy. The kind of guy I want to party with. Haggai. And uh, in Haggai 2, 21 through 23, look at how Haggai ends. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. See, he was a Persian governor. He worked for Cyrus. He worked for the Persians as a governor, not a Davidic king, not the king of the Jews. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. That's tribulation, by the way. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Isn't that special? That's amazing. So he took off the signet ring for his grandfather, Jehoiachin. But when he comes back, he says, I'm going to put that signet ring back on. All right? Not now, not in your lifetime, but in the end times. A resurrected Zerubbabel will reign with Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is seated on. I believe all the kings of Judah will be resurrected and reigning with Jesus Christ. And Zerubbabel gets to be the signet ring. Anytime Jesus issues a decree, it's going to be a resurrected Zerubbabel that's going to stamp it with a signet ring in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? Because that humble man served as a Persian governor when he led some exiles back to a, a ravaged Jerusalem. Well, there we have it. So the book of Jeremiah comes to an end and we come to an end. I need to close in prayer and then we'll dismiss with uh, a closing hymn. I was hoping Molly would come back and play piano for us, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll sing with a closing hymn. We've got a violin and, uh, and then we'll have to dismiss. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this book. And Father, it's been a roller coaster, 52 chapters in 52 weeks. And there's so much more to study, so much depth to glean out of it. But I thank you, Father. You've, you've fed us with Isaiah and then you fed us with Jeremiah. These are powerful books and, and I pray that they will edify us for years to come. Thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.